If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Ephesians? The last chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, as we get back into this study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, Thanks to Jake and to Joshua and to James for preaching the previous three weeks. That was a Good to hear from them and good to have a little break from the pulpit to to take some trips and, and be with family in different ways. So thank you all. Uh, we've been in this letter of Ephesians uh, since the end of February this year, if you can believe it. And we're going to plan to finish our study of it on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, which is coming up. Uh, if you can think back to those early days in this series, you may remember Uh, that we began by seeing the truth that God in Christ has made us a new people. The death and the resurrection of Jesus and our faith in his work places us in Christ, one of Paul's favorite phrases. Uh, And that changes, that that in-Christness changes who we are. Our, Our identity is now found in the fact that we are united to Christ as well as to other believers who have trusted in him, which naturally led into the truth that God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity. Paul's focus on the unity of the church is found next in this book, and it's a unity that transcends uh, every external means of division, making us the body of Christ and displaying how the gospel reconciles us not only to Christ, but also to one another. And so God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and also so that we might walk in a new way. This new walk is what we've considered in chapters 4 through 6, noting in particular how we are to put off certain sinful practices and put on the righteousness that God has called us to. And now here in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20, we've come to the closing exhortations and encouragements in the letter of Ephesians, as well as to probably one of the most famous portions of this letter and possibly of the entire New Testament. These 11 verses are, are like a bottomless well of, of life-giving insight and truth, and people have mined uh, this, this well uh, for a long time. Uh, William Gurnall's book, the Christian Incomplete Armor meditates on these verses for over 1,200 pages in, in a vol- one volume of the, the, that was published of it. And when Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through the book of Ephesians, he devoted 68 sermons to this paragraph. <laughs> We're going to spend four Sundays, which is more than some, but four is where we will, will land. So just so you know where we're going, we'll spend this Sunday thinking a little bit about what's behind Paul's command to put on the armor of God. And then the next two Sundays, we'll think about the pieces of armor that that Paul calls us to put on, including the role of prayer in the spiritual battle that we face. And then on November 13th, which is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we're going to focus on how Paul gives instructions that, that guide us in how to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And so let's begin by reading this passage as a whole. Today we'll focus on verses uh, 10 through 13, but let's hear all of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. This is what God's word says. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for the gift of it, would you open our eyes to understand this passage? Lord, it is familiar to us, and yet it is one that we need to apply every day of our lives. Would you help us to understand the truths that are here? We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, what would it be like to pack for a trip to a foreign country imagining that you are heading there for a vacation when in actuality you were joining the front lines of a war. <laughs> uh, to say the very least, you would arrive completely unprepared. You would not only have failed to pack the right things, but you would, would also be in a mental state of relaxation instead of, of having your mind ready to fight an enemy. You would know nothing about who you were fighting against and you would likely be defeated in moments. From the very beginning, we find in this passage that Paul assumes that we realize we are in a battle. But maybe we don't sometimes. We need to recognize that there's a war happening around us and, and not only around us, but against us. And, and so before we ever think about the kind of armor that we need to put on in order to survive this battle, we have some basic truths that we need to establish, which is why the, the initial call of this passage that I want us to hear today is this. Stand firm in the fight of faith, knowing who our enemy is and where our strength is found. The command, stand firm in the fight of faith, knowing two things, knowing who our enemy is and where our strength is found. You might notice the plural pronouns in that big idea, knowing who our enemy is and where our strength is found. I think the temptation as we come to this passage is to think of it individualistically. But the entirety of the book of Ephesians has focused on the body of Christ. And therefore, it would make sense that the armor we put on, while there is an individual element to it, is actually corporate. We are to stand firm together. 
because we have a common enemy as well as a common source of strength. So this call goes out to all of us, but it goes out to all of us as the church of Christ. All of you who are followers of Jesus, link arms, walk onto the battlefield together and stand firm in the fight of faith, knowing who our enemy is and where our strength is found. Take a quick look at the passage as a whole and note a few of the, the commands, which is also going to help us see the structure of these verses. The first command is found there in verse 10, and it's be strong. Uh, it's a call to strength and power that are found in the Lord. And then we are given a, a parallel and familiar command in verse 11, put on. Put on specifically, we're to put on the, the whole armor of God. And that command is, is repeated in verse 13 with a slight variation. Take up the whole armor of God. We find that putting on the armor of God makes it possible for us, according to verse 13, to stand firm. And then we're commanded in verse 14 to stand firm because we have put on the various pieces of the armor of God. So be strong, put on the armor of God, stand firm. These are some of the key commands. And there's an interweaving of these commands that paints this picture of the battle that we are engaged in. And the picture reveals that our only hope of surviving this battle is found in the Lord, in his strength and in his armor. So we're in a battle, but what exactly is this, this battle? What's the nature of the war that we are in? I mean, I, I, I know that at the end of a day or at the end of a week, we can feel a little bit beat up. But what exactly are we, are we fighting against? What are we fighting for? And here's another place where I think we see the value of studying a, a book as a whole because I think the battle that we're fighting is rooted in the overview of Ephesians that we began this sermon with. Remember how this passage starts? Finally, it says, in other words, this is what draws everything together. Everything that has been said up to this point is drawn together in this moment so, it, so that the battle that we are engaged in becomes clear. So what is the battle? Well, the battle is found in fighting to know and to remember who we are in Christ so that we can walk in this new unity that we have been given and in this new walk of holiness and love that is set before us. The battle is, is against finding our identity outside of Christ. The battle is, is to keep us from, from forsaking the unity that's found in Christ instead of dividing across lines of race or gender or class or a political affiliation or age or some other external factor. The battle is for unity. The battle is, is that we would walk worthy of our calling to unity and to holiness, that we would not walk like we used to walk before Christ, and that we would strive to walk in love towards one another and as children of light in the world, that we would walk in wisdom. The battle is that for we who are, are Christians, that we would remember that God has made us a new people to experience a new unity and walk in a new way because there's an enemy of our souls that is seeking to keep us from doing those exact things. An enemy who wants us to forget who we are, who wants us to forsake our unity, who wants us to walk in darkness the way that we used to. As you think about it, we could find all kinds of reasons for why we don't live as those who are in Christ or why we don't walk in unity or why we struggle to walk in, in the way of the gospel. And in fact, there are many reasons for why our lives don't fully reflect the power of the gospel. 
Some of the struggle is found in our flesh, our sinful nature that remains in us or in the world and its temptations. But Paul wants us to see that our greatest enemy and maybe the enemy behind every other enemy is spiritual. So who is our enemy? Let's say first, our enemy is spiritual. Our enemy is spiritual. Notice in verse 11 that the first way Paul spells out the nature of this battle and of our enemy is by saying that we're standing against the schemes of the devil. So our enemy is spiritual, and speaking of that first, we see the schemes of the devil. The the word schemes reminds us that our enemy is shrewd and sneaky. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that he disguises himself like an angel of light. We might see in Jesus' words in John 10 a picture of Satan as a thief coming in the night or as a, a wolf seeking to devour the sheep. And from the very beginning of the scriptures, we see Satan in the form of a snake slithering into a garden. And there he did what he always does. He lied and he deceived and he twisted the truth. Jesus tells us that when Satan lies, He's speaking his native language. That's what he always does. How do you know when the devil's lying? His lips are moving. (laughs) He's never to be trusted. This spiritual enemy that we're fighting is a liar and a deceiver, always scheming and strategizing to cause us to question our in-Christness or the blessings of, of unity or the goodness of walking in love and in the light. His schemes are seen in large moments and movements of history, but he usually actually works in the small realms of our lives. It, it could be, in fact, that Paul's discussion of the key relationships of the home is what sparked uh, his, this call to spiritual arms. That, that section right before this, when, we talk, when he talks about the key relationships in our homes, could it be that in speaking of that, he realized we need to talk about spiritual warfare now because it's in the home and it's in our closest relationships that the devil seeks to bring division. Think of, of the Satan's schemes in the early chapters of Genesis. What does he do? His first deception is to cause division in a marriage And his second, he moves on to lure a brother into killing his brother. His schemes are evil, and they seek to cause division and disunity in our core relationships, including amongst our sisters and brothers in Christ. We see furthermore that the enemy we are fighting is spiritual in verse 12, where we're told that that we are standing against not simply the schemes of the devil, but, but also against all the forces of darkness. Our enemy is spiritual, it includes the schemes of the devil, and it also includes all the forces of darkness. It's quite the enemy. Uh, These forces of darkness are contrasted with flesh and blood. Paul says that we're not fighting against, literally, we're not wrestling against people that we can see and smell and touch, but against unseen spiritual darkness. But is that true? Because the Ephesians surely had faces come into their minds when when Paul spoke about the enemies of the church. They had neighbors who hated them, and they knew of government officials and emperors who wanted them dead. We can look back at, at the book of Acts, and we can find the names of people who despised 
the way that Christianity had turned Ephesus upside down. The recipients of this letter, were many of them were likely there when Demetrius stirred up the crowd to the point that a riot broke out with a mob so violent that were Paul to walk into the theater where they were converged, he would have been physically torn to pieces. These enemies were not unseen. They were flesh and blood, just as some of your enemies are flesh and blood, just as the enemies of the church around the world are flesh and blood. And yet the Ephesians also were aware of the spiritual forces at work around them, probably more so than we are. Acts is also, also tells us that it was in Ephesus that an evil spirit humiliated the sons of Sceva when they tried to cast it out in the name of Jesus while not really believing in Jesus. And some of those hearing this letter had likely burned their magic books and their occult books as it's described in Acts 19. They had forsaken all of those practices, but they knew firsthand of the unseen darkness in the world as they lived in the shadow of the temple to the false god Artemis. The experience of of the Ephesian church is the same for all followers of Christ in that there are really, truly, real flesh and blood individuals and governments and enemies of all kinds fighting against God's will and ways in this dark world, fighting to destroy your marriage and to divide your family and to demolish the church, fighting to steal your integrity, fighting to kill your witness, to destroy your life, But ultimately, these individuals we see with our eyes are empowered and motivated by unseen spiritual forces. And it's in that unseen realm that our real battle lies. Think of it like this. Imagine that that you buy your coffee every morning from the same nationwide chain, whatever that might be. And then one day you find that the price of your coffee has gone up 50 cents. Now, you could look at the cashier who has just announced to you your new daily total and think that she is the one who has caused this problem. And while she may be a part of this company, she likely has absolutely nothing to do with the prices on the menu. There are forces behind her that are causing your coffee price dilemma. So while you could spend a lot of energy talking to the 20-year-old barista and letting her know what a ripoff this is, you would actually probably, probably be missing the real quote-unquote enemy. Here at Ephesians, I think Paul wants us to take our eyes off of all of the enemies that we see with our eyes every day and become aware of the many forces of darkness that surround us and who we are ultimately fighting against in our striving after unity and holiness as God's children. He wants us to know who our real enemy is. And so he describes the forces of darkness that we are ultimately wrestling against. There are four categories of the forces of darkness mentioned in verse 12. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, as far as distinguishing what each of these words and phrases refers to, I found very few commentators actually take on that that task. Rather, we find that what Paul is conveying, 
through the, this description of spiritual forces that are arrayed against the church of Jesus Christ is that they are powerful and they are organized. They're powerful and they're organized. There's some sort of hierarchy going on here. We find too that Paul's not dismissive of the spiritual forces of darkness. He understands that the unseen forces working against God's will and God's ways and God's people in this world are a force to be reckoned with. In our modern scientific age, it's easy to focus on the things that we can see and imagine that they are of the utmost importance. But we ignore the great power and the organized battle plan of the spiritual forces of darkness to our own peril. Don't let the the real advancements in technology and other fields cause you to forsake the unchanging wisdom and insight of God's word. In fact, causing Christians to question the reality of these forces may be one of their greatest strategies. We need to take these things seriously. John Stott summarizes the character of the devil's schemes and of the forces of darkness by saying of our spiritual enemies that they are powerful, they are wicked, and they are cunning. I think it's a good description. They're powerful, they're wicked, and they are cunning. And when we recognize just how powerful, wicked, and cunning they are, then we realize why Paul tells us that in our fight to stand against them, our strength must be supernatural. That's the second thing to think about. Our strength must be supernatural. But the U.S. Army doesn't hand out pellet or paintball guns to its soldiers (laughs) because the battles that they engage in are not a game. Those kinds of weapons are going to do nothing to protect them. And if we truly understand the enemy that we we face in our fight to stand in unity and in holiness, then we will see that whatever strength we have in ourselves, it's not enough. Can you stand against this description that Paul has given us of our enemies? Cosmic forces of darkness? Paul's description of our enemy leads us to conclude that on our own, We are helpless. And so he tells us in verse 10 that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our strength must be supernatural. Therefore, our strength must be in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's the Lord who, in fact, has already defeated Satan, such that his power is like that of a large dog on an unbreakable leash. That dog can bark and snarl and snap at us, but Jesus has staked his leash at the foot of the cross and he can go no further than Christ will allow him to go. Paul wants us to be strong in this power of the Lord. In fact, he's already prayed that we would know this power that is on our side. He asked the Lord back in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23, he asked the Lord this, that we would know What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in us, that that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
that's who we need on our side, right? If we're fighting against principalities and powers, we need the one who's exalted above all of them. And in the cross, Jesus has defeated sin and Satan such that they have no power over the one who trusts in the gospel. Jesus gives us resurrection power as the one who has, has not only been resurrected, but who has also been exalted far above every earthly and every spiritual power. Think about this. Our hope of salvation is not rooted in what we can do. Our hope is, of salvation is not rooted in the strength that we have. It's found in faith in what God has done through his immeasurable power and limitless love in sending Christ. And we, we are made children of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if that's how we are saved, then it's also how we will stand. Fellow Christian, our hope has never been in ourselves. <laughs> to be a Christian is to not hope in ourselves. And so we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we're going to talk more about the armor of the Lord next week, but just notice that the armor we wear in this fight against Satan and his demons and all these spiritual forces is the Lord's armor. It's not our own armor. He supplies us with all that we need to stand firm. But having said that, we should also point out that just because the strength and the armor are the Lord's does not mean that we are passive in this fight. We are told to be strong. That's a command. You be strong in the Lord. We're, we're told to put on the armor. It, it's the Lord's armor, but we have to put it on. And, and we're even given instructions about the specific pieces of armor that we are to put on. Uh, John Stott says this. <laughs> he says, some Christians are so self-confident that they think they can manage by themselves without the Lord's strength and armor. Others are so self-distrustful that they imagine they have nothing to contribute to their victory in spiritual warfare. Both are mistaken. Paul expresses the proper combination of divine enabling and human cooperation. Divine enabling and human cooperation. That's, that's how we grow in sanctification. It's how we fight our spiritual battles. Our enemy is so powerful and so wicked and so cunning that we must fight with supernatural power found from and in the Lord alone. But we also must fight. We must join together in this battle and bend every effort of our minds and our hearts and our wills in it. And what's our goal? What's our goal in this battle? Our goal is to stand. That's the last thing I want us to think about this afternoon. Our goal is to stand. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel like a very lofty goal at first glance, does it? In the midst of all these forces that are arrayed against us, our goal is to stand. <laughs> However, that actually makes perfect sense given a few things. First, there's really no ground to take for the follower of Jesus because God in Christ is already completely victorious. There's no ground to take. He's already been exalted completely. What, what the, what's going on is that we, we live 
in this not yet realm of the world awaiting his return when the fullness of his victory is realized, when Satan finally is defeated and cast into the lake of fire forever. So Christ already is completely victorious. There is no ground to take. He has taken it all on his own. We await the day when we know that fully. The goal of standing also makes sense in light of the illustration that Paul is using. He's talking about fighting a battle as, a, as an army with armor on, and also he's talking about wrestling. We might think about an army who is asked to simply hold the line, to stand. Whenever I think about that, I'm reminded of Colonel Chamberlain holding the line at Little Round Top in Gettysburg. And the only reason I know that so well is because it's portrayed so well in the film Gettysburg where he holds the line. Standing firm was no small task for those men from Maine. And standing in this battle is no small task. Just standing takes every effort that we have. Paul also talks about wrestling. And in, in that kind of one on one competition, the goal in, in some forms of wrestling is simply to stand on your feet. It's to not fall down. And if you've ever wrestled, which I did in fourth grade, it was some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. If you've ever wrestled, you know that it takes every muscle that you have and some muscles that you didn't know you had to stand. And so too, standing in this battle is going to take every effort that we have. Paul speaks specifically here. Did you notice this? He, he talks about, in verse 13, he says that we are to, to, specifically he wants us to stand in the evil day. Did you notice that phrase? To stand in the evil day. Our goal is to stand in the evil day. Now, I don't think this is a specific day, like the day of the Lord or something like that. But rather, the, it's the day and the days when the forces of evil are so strongly against us. This is how Sinclair Ferguson describes it. He says it's a day when temptation, desire, and opportunity converge. Temptation, desire, and opportunity converge. There are days when we are tempted, but by God's grace, the desire to sin is absent. Or, or there's days when the desire to sin is there, but there's simply no opportunity. But then there are days. There's days, no matter how hard we try to keep them from occurring, there's days when temptation and desire and opportunity come together and they combine to fight against us and to knock us off our feet. Those are the days that we need to stand. Ferguson points to King David and his sin against Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 as an example. You remember David was not where he was supposed to be. He was tempted. He was filled with desire. He had opportunity. And he fell into sin upon sin. And we too will face evil days. And if we're going to stand in the evil day, it will not be in our own strength. David, the man after God's own heart, fell in the evil day. And unless we stand in the strength of the Lord with his armor on us, with our fellow Christians by our side, we too will fall. As we strive to stand on these evil days, we're also seeking to stand until our final day. 
We're seeking to stand until our final day. We're, we're striving to endure to the end. You know, this goal of standing, at first, it, like I said, it seems a little lame, doesn't it? But it becomes more and more real to us, I think, as we walk through life. Because as we go through the years, we see the moments where we could have fallen and how the Lord has upheld us, just allowed us to stand by his strength. And sadly, too, we, we see many who name the name of Christ who are no longer standing in him. To stand in the evil day, and to stand until the final day, that's a miracle of God's grace. For you to stand and to be faithful until the end, you can only do it in the Lord. And so the call here is to stand firm in the fight of faith. Stand firm in the fight of faith, knowing who our enemy is and knowing where our strength is found. Brothers and sisters, we've, we forget it, but we are in a battle. We are in a battle every day, and our enemy is spiritual. We are, we are fighting against the schemes of the devil and the unseen powers of darkness all around us. They're seeking to distort our understanding of who we are as those who are in Christ. They are seeking to divide us across any lines and make us forget the unity that, that is ours in the gospel. They are working over time to draw us away from God's love and from the holiness of life that he's called us to. They're targeting our families. They're targeting our closest relationships. They're targeting our church and churches around the world. And we cannot fight these enemies in our own strength. Our strength has to be supernatural. It must be in the Lord and through his armor as we strive to live in him and in his truth. And when we live in him, our goal is very simple, isn't it? Just to stand. Stand firm and stand in the evil day and stand to the end. And in the end, on the last day, we'll know that it was the Lord that helped us to stand. And any standing that we do is in Christ. Any standing we do is in Christ because he is the one who fought Satan all the way to death and hell, and then rose victorious over him and over every other force of evil in this world. So all praise to Jesus who has conquered and who invites us to stand in him. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I will pray for us. Father, would you, would you open our eyes to see the battle that we are in? We see all these things with our physical eyes and they consume us so often. Would you open our eyes to see the unseen spiritual forces that are waging a war against us as your children, against, against your church? And then, Lord, would you open our eyes to see all the strength that is ours in Christ and in the armor that you've provided through the gospel and the work that he has done. Lord, this week, would you, would you walk with us, opening our eyes and helping us to see our need to stand firm? Would you even prepare us to, to think more deeply about this armor of God in these next few weeks and 
to see all these practical ways that you've called us to stand in the strength that you provide for us. Lord, thank you that our, our great hope is not in our strength, that it's in what Christ has done. Thank you for his death and thank you for his resurrection that, that proves his power, the power that is ours. Ask all this in his name, amen.